Okay, uh, so we're going to move on uh, to Dr. Landovitz, who's uh, the co-chair for today's program, and he's going to update us on uh, developments at, uh, at CROI. So thanks, Ron, and thanks to the IAS group for inviting me here, um, and thanks everyone for coming. Um, uh, Dr. Klatt's presentation sort of gives us um, new thoughts on the concept of the dog ate my homework, doesn't it? It's sort of a remarkable phenomenon. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about that. Um, uh, every, anyone who went to CROI this year knows that it's still the premier scientific conference um, uh, for, for HIV, clinical basic science, epidemiology research. Um, that happens every year. And everyone who goes takes something different away from it. So um, if you did go and or you've been to a review and you've heard of other things that um, you thought were really fascinating um, and I'm not covering them, um, please don't uh, think that I'm intentionally excluding any information. We just have limited time and, and I'm just sort of picking out the highlights of the things that I thought were most interesting and potentially practice transforming um, from, from the conference this year. Um, I do uh, want to uh, let people know my disclosures are here. Um, our learning objectives are to talk about new advances in treatment and prevention, um, optimal management of antiretrovirals, complications and comorbidities. And I just want to um, point out Dr. Judith Currier, who's sitting in the back there. She was the chair of this year's conference, and it was really um, a remarkable conference, um, with, uh, particularly with regard to the diversity of the preventers and, and, and speakers that were highlighted. There were enormous uh, numbers of, of women presenting, and enormous numbers of international investigators presenting, and um, I think the whole uh, CROI program committee really should be commended in, in, in that, that real evolution of the conference. Um, so the first thing I, I want to talk about is something Dr. Klatt mentioned, which has to do with something we all think about a lot with our HIV-infected patients, life expectancy, right? And there's been cohort data that suggested that we're sort of asymptotically approaching um, uh, life expectancy for HIV-infected individuals um, that we see in HIV-uninfected individuals. And the NA Accord cohort, this is a longitudinal cohort that um, has been looking over the years um, at this exact question and trying to understand if there still are differences in life expectancy between people living with HIV infection and HIV uninfected individuals. And they, they've looked at really in three different periods at this time, um, all in sort of the modern-ish um, ART era, 2005 to 2007, 2008 to 2011, and 2012 to 2015. And the long story short of what they saw in their most recent analysis is that life expectancy for HIV-infected individuals is, in fact, improving, um, um, but we're not quite there yet in terms of meeting life expectancy for people without HIV infection, particularly um, in certain groups. And, and, and these are some of the plots that they were able to show um, um, for, this, and this is life expectancy for someone at age 18, how many additional years of life they would be expected to have. So the numbers that you see in these plots, you would add 18 to when thinking what the total life expectancy would be. And what you could see is still um, an excess of life ex uh, of, uh, uh, um, uh, of, of differentiation uh, for men lagging behind women between um, black women, um, uh, lagging a little bit behind white women, um, people who inject drugs lagging significantly behind, behind people who did not inject 
drugs. Interestingly, um, Hispanic or Latino individuals having more longer life expectancy than non-Hispanic uh, individuals, black MSM lagging significantly behind white MSM, and those with hepatitis C infection um, lagging behind those who were not infected with hepatitis C. So still in these specific subgroups, we've got additional um, uh, barriers to get through to, to get life expectancy um, uh, towards, uh, towards what we see in HIV uninfected individuals. And again, this is parsed out over the three time periods that this cohort group has looked at. With regards to treatment, there were some really um, interesting advances um, in HIV treatment. I know um, for initial first-line treatment, we think that we've really optimized HIV treatment. We have really good responses. We have a lot of good single-tablet regimens. I'm not going to spend a lot of time um, in this talk talking about Bictegravir um, uh, and the single-tablet regimen that was recently approved with Bictegravir because it's going to be discussed in some of our case discussions a little bit later. Um, but I do want to talk about some really interesting um, technology that's being used to support our more challenging uh, patients who don't seem to be effectively adhering to daily oral antiretroviral therapy. Um, and the first was an analysis that was presented um, uh, by Monica Gandhi um, on an, an ACTG study, 5257, which um, was a treatment-naive study that looked at um, first-line treatment of non-nucleoside-containing antiretroviral therapy. So people got either TDF-FTC with boosted adizanavir, TDF-FTC with raltegravir, or TDF-FTC with boosted darunavir, and were followed prospectively. Um, and, and what Monica did was she took hair samples um, from these participants. And, and hair is very interesting because over the span of a shaft of hair, you can measure the amount um, of each of the components of the antiviral regimen over time. So the area closest to the scalp um, is the most recent adherence metric, and then you can see over time um, how people were adhering. And she was able to parse out adherence as measured by hair as highly pre predictive of, how, um, of whether people were going to maintain virologic suppression or not. So you're going to say, how does that help my clinical practice? I think what we're rapidly moving to um, is the need for and the development of point-of-care assays for the measurement of adherence so we can deploy adherence-supporting strategies in the clinic um, in real time and not rely on self-report of adherence to medications, which we know is really unreliable. I will tell you in this particular data set, um, there was um, virtually any variability whatsoever in this patient population in what they reported they were doing with taking their antiretrovirals. Everybody was over 95% on self-report. And clearly that's not the case. And if you look at the risk of virologic failure, it really did parse out by this hair mechanism. Um, by that same sort of token and trying to extend it a little bit more, there's this guy, Pete Anderson, um, at University of Colorado, Denver, who's developed this assay to measure tenofovir metabolites in red blood cells. And I'll share with you, I kind of have an intellectual crush on Pete because I think this is really sort of incredibly brilliant and elegant technology. So what happens is tenofovir diphosphate, which is the active metabolite that Dr. Klatt was mentioning, um, for tenofovir, it, it sort of gets stuck in red blood cells, and red blood cells last about 90 days before they die, right? So if you have a red blood cell, you measure the amount of tenofovir diphosphate in the red blood cell, what it gives you is basically a hemoglobin A1C for adherence over that 60 to 90 day period. 
And um, what Jose Castillo Mencia, who works with Pete, did was they took their clinical cohort of HIV-infected individuals taking a TDF-based regimen, and they did these dried blood spots and categorized their adherence um, based on how many doses per week on average over the last 60 to 90 days people were taking. And what you can say, see is um, the, the risk of being suppressed um, with, um, with the more doses you took is exactly what you would expect. Again, the self-report in this population was everyone said they were taking their meds all the time. And what's particularly exciting about this technology is Pete actually has a grant to develop a point-of-care dried blood spot assay that is in the works. So maybe today you're thinking this doesn't help me very much, um, but in the future, this could be something that you would have in your clinic. And in the moment, if you have someone that you're concerned about, you could get this assay back and then deliver appropriate adherence support um, if, if it turns out that the adherence over the past two to three months suggested non-adherence at, at a level. So, um, so this is sort of looking at the future, and that's why I thought it was really interesting um, to talk to you guys about um, one other thing I wanted to, to mention is, you know, what is really the future of antiretroviral therapy? And one of the things that's really um, this tremendous excitement about are these broadly neutralizing monoclonal antibodies, or people call them BNABs. Um, and, and the idea here is, of course, we all have patients or know of people who are HIV infected, but have some, there's something about the combination of their immune system and their virus that they're able to control the HIV replication without antiretroviral therapy. Right, these so-called so elite controllers, long-term non-progressors, um, and 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 there have been these antibodies that have been isolated from these individuals that have been in the laboratory um, modified and refined so that they could potentially be put passively into other HIV-infected individuals, perhaps as a substitute in the future for daily pill oral uh, antiretroviral therapy. Um, and, and perhaps the most exciting one that's coming down the pike um, is the same way we, um, you know, we gave AZT back in the day and we realized that the virus escaped from AZT and became resistant and we gave AZT and DDI and it escaped from that and then we realized that three drugs together seem to be somewhat magical in being able to prevent the virus from escaping it. Um, it seems like one monoclonal antibody the virus has escaped able to escape from, and perhaps two also. And so uh, the Sanofi has developed this tri-specific monoclonal antibody, which is highly specific and broad um, in terms of the virus that it's able to neutralize. Um, and it's, it's about to go into humans. It's not in humans yet. What was presented to Croy was some non-human primate data that showed that it was highly um, uh, active and able to suppress um, a macaque model um, of HIV infection um, and prevent these macaques from actually getting infected in a challenge context. So again, this is probably a number of years away from, um, uh, from being in, uh, uh, useful as therapeutics. It's in, it's in uh, various of these antibodies are in various stages of clinical development. But this one, with its three specificities in one antibody, has people tremendously excited. Um, and it's not three different antibodies. It's sort of, do you remember Cerberus in, in mythology, the three-headed dog that protect, uh, you know, stood at the door to Hades and well, was it Hades? I don't know, it was some place. They protected something. Yes, Rich is saying yes, it was. 
I don't know. Okay, but anyway, this is a three-headed monoclonal antibody. So it's one product that has these three different specificities. So stay tuned for more about that. A couple of interesting things at Croy about strategies um, regarding antiretrovirals. Um, you all might remember um, the Gardell study. It was a study done in Spain and largely in South America. And it looked at Calitra plus 3TC as first-line therapy in antiretroviral-naive um, patients. And I think a lot of people were skeptical that it would work, but it turned out it was non-inferior to a more conventional three-drug regimen. The problem, of course, was the three-drug regimen that was used in that study used agents that we probably wouldn't be using today, used a lot of AZT and D4T as part of the three-drug combination. So this is sort of um, Gardel 2, but it's called Andes. Um, it was also largely done in, in, in South America. Um, and it used boosted darunavir, not Kaletra, with 3TC as a two-drug regimen. And these were HIV-infected uh, individuals with at least a viral load of 1,000 who were treatment-naive, and they didn't have hepatitis B, right, because you only have 3TC as the only potentially active hepatitis B agent there. Um, and, and they took darunavir-ritonavir as a fixed-dose combination with 3TC, um, or the compatibility Comparator arm was TDF and, and 3TC. And, and the, the long story short was it looked pretty good at 24 weeks. Those were the results we had seen before. Um, but at 48 weeks, which was what presented at CROI, um, it actually was non-inferior by their pre-specified definition. So if you ever find yourself in a situation where um, you have someone who is not a TAF or tenofovir, uh, not a TAF or TDF candidate, and for whatever reason you are not comfortable using in a back of ear based regimen, we now do have some treatment naive data for this particular combination. So our armamentarium of two drug treatment that could be used for first line therapy is really expanding and changing our previous paradigm that we absolutely have to start three drugs um, as, uh, for first-line therapy in absolutely everyone. Should this be our go-to all the time now? I don't think we're there yet um, because we have such um, well-tolerated um, uh, regimens, but I do think this is ever-expanding um, our two-drug options. Okay, I wanna jump at this point to the treatment experience population, and this is a little outside of the US context. This was a really complicated study called ACTG 5288, and I apologize. I know the ACTG studies have these numbers. They don't all have names. It's sort of like almost a party trick to remember you know, what the names go, you know, go with the studies. But th this was um, a, a study for third-line therapy in treatment-limited settings. Um, it was done in Thailand, in Brazil, um, in some sites in Africa, um, in India, um, and, and it stratified these patients based on their level of resistance. So if you look at their cohorts here, that basically as you go from A to B to C to D, there's more resistance in each cohort. This was not randomized. They were stratified by their resistance testing at baseline. And, and their goal was to combine new agents that were available locally using resistance testing, which is not traditionally done in the treatment algorithms 
in these places and try and get over 60% of each of these progressively resistant populations suppressed. So this was not designed to be comparative. It was, can we get to 60%? That was sort of the end game. And, and these were their results. And you can see that in, in, in some of actually the more resistant cohorts, as we go from B to C to D, they actually were over 60%. And that's really impressive, considering how poorly these patients were doing before without um, genotypic assistance in designing their regimen. And, and so really, the public health impact of this was that in resource-limited settings, when you have limited treatment options, you can use some of the tools that we sort of take for granted with genotypic testing and get much better results. But what it really emphasizes in these settings where often you can't get genotypes is people who have the least resistance um, have a problem that you all probably are thinking at this point that you know exactly what the problem is. Who has virologic failure with no resistance here in our setting? People who have challenges with adherence. And that's not different in, in, um, in, in the, the developing world in resource-limited settings. And we need more options for improving adherence um, and perhaps some of these longer-acting therapies that are in development might be something that would help this population. But just having more drugs and genotypic testing doesn't help someone who's still not going to take your regimen. So I think that was an important lesson learned here. And so you, if you can identify people who don't have resistance, maybe that's a marker that you shouldn't go throwing these second and third and more advanced line drugs their way until you sort of fix the underlying adherence challenges. Okay. Something else that's, that's interesting that was done in the developing world um, that I do think has some, some important implications for us here um, is this notion of we have really good fully suppressive regimens. Most of them involve integrase inhibitors um, to start with, and we know the viral kinetics of integrase inhibitors drop the viral load extremely quickly, and that's one of their, their advantages. But in a case where you don't use um, integrase inhibitor as first-line therapy, for example, let's say you have someone with acute or primary HIV infection, you don't have a genotype back yet, and you're feeling a little skittish. Maybe you want to use a boosted protease inhibitor just until you have that resistance testing back. Should you throw an integrase inhibitor in also just to drop that viral load more quickly, particularly if they're symptomatic? Or you have a pregnant woman who comes in, they're diagnosed late, and you want to drop the viral load extremely quickly. What is the role of the integrase inhibitor? Here we kind of have the luxury of being able to do that with a plum. We don't worry about it too much, right? Um, but in the developing world, when you drop the viral load um, really quickly, you worry about iris and you worry about what the morbidity from iris is because there are so many things that sort of present in the context of immune reconstitution, right? We're, we're lucky that we're seeing that less and less here in the United States because people's CD4 counts most often don't get that low when we start therapy. But in context where the CD4 count is extremely low at the initiation, we really do have to think about this. So this was a study that was sort of a multifactorial study. The first question was, um, um, should I, when I initiate first-line ART, um, throw in raltegravir in addition to my NNRTI-based therapy for 12 weeks to drop the viral load more quickly? And the long story short was, no, it didn't make a difference. But importantly, there was also not an increase in iris-related bad outcomes. However, there was another randomization in this study where they randomized the participants to just getting standard Bactrim-based prophylaxis 
to an expanded sort of um, portfolio of prophylactic medicines that include isoniazid and B6, fluconazole, five days of azithromycin, and a single dose of albendazole just because, you know, there might be worms. Um, so, and that intervention, the expanded um, uh, prophylaxis pack package, actually had sig significantly fewer um, iris events and fatal iris events. So in resource-limited settings, I think this is something that could be considered, and the question is, you know, what is the feasibility of rolling these out when resources are so limited? But it does seem to have an important benefit. But I think uh, the take-home for us is that we can add integrase inhibitors to other fully suppressive regimens for short courses um, in order to drop the viral load quickly without a seeming increase in iris-related complications. Now, of course, these data aren't from the United States or you know, the, the, the resource-rich countries, so, but you would expect the number of events to be even lower there. Okay, um, one thing that is sort of very hot right now is immediate or extremely early initiation of ART after diagnosis, right? Same day initiation of ART even. And there have been a number of studies that have suggested benefit to doing this, and you know, the challenge, of course, in our settings is it's very resource intensive, right? You come in, someone's newly diagnosed on the spot. Do you have all the financial pieces in place? Do you have the support systems in place? Can you have the sort of um, social support staff uh, in place to work with a, a patient to get them to the point where they are ready to say, yes, you just told me some potentially life-changing information and I'm willing to start medication right this nanosecond while waiting for additional laboratory tests to come back. Um, but San Francisco um, has been doing it um, and they're very successful at it and they've showed some remarkable decreases um, in a number of their care parameters. Particularly, I'm gonna ask you to look at the final line of this slide, the time from diagnosis to virologic suppression. Since they have implemented this rapid start, they have dropped the time from uh, diagnosis to virologic suppression by 54%. And I think the important implication there, of course, is we suspect, and epidemiologic data really confirms, that it's these people who are newly diagnosed and not on treatment who are the drivers of new infection. And so if we're able to get them to suppression much more quickly, then we have the potential to have enormous impact on incident infections in our communities. Now, I think um, it'll be interesting to have some conversation amongst this group about what people see as the local challenges to deploying this, but um, this is becoming increasingly more of the moment, um, and if people can't initiate antiretroviral therapy same day, to minimize the time from diagnosis to initiation of antiretroviral therapy, no more this um, make a diagnosis, come back in a few weeks, and, and we'll start you then. And even the question of if you diagnose someone in the hospital, um, should you initiate them on ART and take that opportunity to start and not make them, as we have historically in the past, follow up in an outpatient setting before initiating antiretroviral therapy. And of course, there are pluses and minuses to, to both of those. Um, there was also a, a, a resource-limited setting trial of this same-day initiation um, in Lesotho. 
um, which really was impressive. And they showed um, viral suppression at 12 months, as well as linkage to care when this was done in a home-based setting in these resource-limited settings. That is really impressive. So this is a wave that I think we're going to be seeing people riding going forward. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about it, um, including some initiatives from the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. So stay tuned for more about that. We have some of our representation from LA County DHSP in the background. We can talk to them at our break. Um, uh, some really interesting data uh, presented uh, um, on uh, uh, substance using populations. We're going to hear, be hearing a lot more about opioid therapy a little later in today's um, talks. Um, there was a randomized placebo-controlled trial of naltrexone in individuals who were HIV-infected leaving the prison system. And um, there were, these were um, people who had opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder, two different trials, and they were able to show um, impressive improvements in rates of virologic suppression um, uh, at, at six months after um, they left the prison system for people who got the active intervention compared to the placebo intervention. Now, I think this is interesting, and, and one question I think we'll have for, uh, for some discussion uh, with Dr. Bruce a little bit later um, will be, what do you do with people who aren't willing to take these, these interventions, that they're not seeking treatment for their substance use disorder, which is, I think, something that we all struggle with. But um, I think this is really exciting information when you have someone you know, who's transitioning from a very structured setting back to the community, and we worry about um, um, their, their falling off the HIV treatment cascade in that context, and is this an additional tool that we have that could be helpful? It'll be interesting to hear, hear some additional comments about that. So I'm gonna switch to my favorite topic from Croy, um, which was pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, so um, uh, PrEP use in the United States, um, uh, some new epidemiologic data that's presented by the Emory Group that showed things that you probably already knew, that um, there are well-educated, well-informed, plugged into the healthcare system groups in the United States who are uptaking PrEP like crazy. And then there are people who are disenfranchised from the medical system where they, there's uh, limited health literacy, um, limited trust in the medical system, and they are struggling. And of course, I'm talking about largely the southeast of the United States, where the PrEP um, uh, rates per 100,000 population are the lowest, but the HIV new diagnosis rates are the highest. Um, and uh, the group at Emory has worked really hard to take their AIDS view um, website. If you're not familiar with it, please find it. It's really fascinating. It talks about HIV prevalence and incidence down to the county and sometimes zip code level if you're interested in your local epidemiology. And now they're starting to overlay PrEP use on top of that to try and understand how we can better target PrEP in the United States to communities most at need. But it, what it's really highlighting is we're not getting past these disparities between the groups of people having the highest rates of incidence and new diagnoses and the people who are uptaking PrEP at the highest rates. Um, and they did some additional analyses, and not surprisingly, it's women, people under 25 in the South, and um, non-Medicaid expansion states, all are the lowest rates um, of PrEP use, um, but have the highest uh, prescription to need ratios. Um, there was an example of uh, real success for PrEP in Australia, in New South Wales. They did a demonstration project where they, they were trying to recruit recruit 3,700 MSM at high risk um, for HIV. They blew through that recruitment goal. They're already past 
3,700, and they were able to show that their rates of new HIV diagnoses had dropped 32% compared to the previous year since they rolled out this program. So it's, it's a little bit of a sense of the kind of public health impact that this can have if rolled out without regard to ability to pay, access services, and just make it available to everyone. And so the question is, where's the political will and the finances to do that in the United States? That's a provocative question, obviously. Um, okay, um, I'm gonna talk a little bit of basic science. Um, many of you know that I'm actually um, uh, uh, very interested and involved in the development of this long-acting injectable cabotegravir, which is an integration inhibitor administered as an every two-month injection for pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's currently in phase three studies. We hope to have results by 2020, 2021. Um, but um, there's very little that's known about the penis. Um, we know about how these drugs get into rectal tissue, how it gets into vaginal tissue, um, but, and we, how it gets into blood, how it gets into PBMCs, but no one knows anything about the penis. And some, some of that has to do with um, the, the mechanisms for getting tissue samples from the penis um, are challenging, right? Biopsies, probably not so popular. Um, um, and um, there are some scraping techniques that involve sandpaper. Um, that also um, are not particularly popular, but, um, but these data are really important, right, because people are insertive partners um, in a number of contexts, um, and, and understanding how these drugs work and their pharmacokinetics in the penis are important. Um, and that was not an attempt on my part to see how many times in one sentence I could say the word penis, just so you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, but they, the CDC used a macaque challenge model of penises um, to, uh, to look at the efficacy of tenofovir in this SHIV challenge model. And they were able to also do it with cabotegravir and showed that both cabotegravir and Truvada in a penile infection model seem to be highly protective. So the take home message there is good news. It seems to work, say it with me, for penises. Okay. Um, uh, Dr. Klatt mentioned um, TAF-FTC and that um, it seems that TAF applied vaginally does not um, get eaten by the bacteria in the vagina, and that's really exciting. Um, we, remember, we don't know yet if TAF-FTC works for PrEP. There's a fully powered efficacy study that is fully enrolled and ongoing, and we will have the results in a couple of years to answer this question. There are a couple of reasons why it might not work. Um, and um, that has to do with exactly what Dr. Klatt was saying, which TAF doesn't stay um, uh, in, in the blood plasma. Um, it uh, is rapidly transited into cells, um, PBMCs in particular, so it doesn't stay floating around in the blood as free tenofovir causing toxicity. That might be great when the bacteria in your microbiome are trying to eat it, um, but it turns out it doesn't stay in the blood plasma. It goes into um, uh, hematologic cells. It does not get into vaginal and rectal tissue very well at all. So if tissue levels where the mucosal exposures are happening are important, it is possible that TEF-FTC won't work for PrEP. So um, we can have some case discussions in a little bit about 
um, whether or not we, we think that it could ever be a reasonable alternative. Um, but please, until then, don't use it. I do want to say that in a macaque challenge model of vaginal shiv exposures, it did work. And there have been previous data presented um, for rectal challenge models similarly, where it did work in a macaque model. But remember that all of our vaccines that looked really good in macaque challenge models, at least to date, have not panned out when they got to humans. So what that means sort of remains to be seen. All right, I'm one minute over my time already, um, so I'm gonna tell you one more thing and then I will stop and we'll have some time for some questions. Um, this, I think, is the most exciting thing upcoming in prevention. Um, and, and this is a new drug that's in development by Merck. It's called MK8591, um, and it's, a, it's, it's, it's like an NRTI. It's got a number of different mechanisms of action. It's just not a regular NRTI. It also present, prevents translocation um, of the nucleotide throughout its recycled pathway. Also, that gives it a very long half-life. And um, Merck is talking about developing it both as a pill, as part of treatment um, for infrequent dosing, but also for prevention as a pill. And they're talking about um, inserting it into these implants. And they make one of the hormonal contraceptive implants. So they have a lot of experience making these implants. And they're going to, excuse the term, impregnate um, these, these implants with this MK8591 at extremely low doses and potentially evaluate it as a PrEP agent when implanted under the skin, which has the advantage of if there's a side effect or toxicity, you just remove it and the adverse event would go away, which is different from these injectable PrEP agents, which once you give it, you can't take it away and you're married to that side effect or toxicity for potentially as long as 12 to 18 months. So we're making incremental advances, but this drug, if it proves to be safe and effective for treatment and prevention, is one of the more exciting new drugs on the horizon. Um, what they presented at Croy was, again, some macaque challenge models, but they did this dose de-escalation model. It was really interesting. They used a pretty low dose of it to start with, and they found all these monkeys were completely protected with recurrent rectal challenges. Then they dropped the dose by about half still highly protected. Then they dropped it by half again, still highly protected. Then they dropped it down to the lowest dose they could possibly um, administer in any sort of sustained fashion. And then they saw that um, two of the eight monkeys got infected. But still, it gives you an idea of how potent this drug is at very low milligram doses, which is very exciting for being able to do the biologic engineering of putting it into a new little device and also um, having it be able to wash out of the system quickly when you remove that device. Because one of my questions when I heard about this is, well, if it's so long acting, if you give it a pill, when you take out the implant, is it gonna be long acting too? And how does that help you? But the doses are so low at which you get this antiviral activity, at least for prevention, is it does wash out quickly. So very exciting, all to be determined. All right, I will stop there. Happy to answer any questions. Thanks so much. I think I only killed five minutes of our question time. Yeah. <laughs>
Hello. Hey. Um, so here's a question um, about an HIV negative woman. Um, oh, a female with uh, vaginal dysbiosis on PrEP. Uh, should we dose adjust? Um, can you say? Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great and interesting question. To date, there's no data that you should dose adjust. In fact, there was some data um, from, from Renee Heffron presented last summer um, that showed that these TDF, FTC prep um, preparations, when taken systemically, so not topically, do not seem to be affected by the vaginal microbiome. So if you're taking PrEP orally, does not seem to be an issue. Um, we can have more conversations with Nikki about whether or not she believes that, but these were the data, she doesn't, she's shaking her head no. But the data that she was presenting was, was when topical application. So the long story short though is, um, there certainly are no recommendations for doing anything other than one dose per day for vaginal uh, protection at this time. Um, before I go on, I was asked to um, ask the audience if there's a seat next to you that's vacant, please raise your hand because we have some people in the back that need, need uh, a seat. Okay, so you guys, you can come find a seat over here. Okay, um, someone had a question about the Amsterdam ma man who was on PrEP, um, who uh, caught an HIV wild type virus infection but failed to have a positive viral load, um, but was determined to be HIV positive um, by antibody only when his PrEP was stopped. Uh, do you have an explanation or can you? Um, can, can, can you can, put up this slide that I put up here now? It's, it's keep going. So whoever asked that, you, you promised that was not a plant. Um, yeah, that one. So. There have been three um, clear-cut cases of PrEP failure, um, and I put failure in quotes, in the literature to date in people who were taking daily oral TDF, FTC, um, at least daily by the best ways we can measure it. That's subject A, B, and C up here. Subject C is what the question was about. There was a Dutch patient. We'll get to him in just a second. It was in this slide deck because there was an additional fourth case that was presented at Croy that I actually don't believe was a true PEP failure. We'll get to that. We'll get to that in a second. But um, th this whole the whole idea here is um, first of all, can you break through PrEP, um, right? And the answer is, of course you can. Nothing is perfect. Um, uh, nothing is a hundred percent. We've seen two cases of people breaking through with multi-drug resistant virus, which is happily quite a rare thing. You know, you'd have to have virus that is resistant to both components of the, of the PrEP agent, in this case, TDF and FTC. Um, and and the, the third case, um, this subject C, this Dutch um, patient, um, is particularly interesting because they seroconverted with wild-type virus. And the analogy that I make from what the way I interpret this here um, is, you know, the levees of Hurricane Katrina were well built, um, but not well built enough to withstand an enormous onslaught of the water that came from Hurricane Katrina. And so nothing is going to be a, an impervious barrier to um, 
repeated high inoculum exposures. Um, this Dutch uh, patient was having um, somewhere in the order of 50 to 75 partners per month. Um, there was chemsex being used simultaneously. There were um, uh, STIs that were likely to be ulcerative in the genital tract going on at the same time. And you would be shocked if there was any preventive technology that was able to withstand, withstand that kind of inoculum level onslaught. And uh, to me, that's how I read what happened with this participant. Um, what, what's more interesting and a little bit more frustrating about some of these cases is we've learned that both clinically and from a laboratory standpoint, um, the seroconversion process can be different and aberrant when taking TDF FTC prep. So the clinical signs and symptoms can be protein, abnormal, odd, or completely absent. Um, and then the laboratory uh, pattern can be very challenging. And in particular, this Dutch case, um, there, there was um, a positive fourth generation test, but the viral load tests, qualitative and quantitative, were negative and all sorts of extremely sensitive assays, including rectal biopsies and PBMCs. Um, were assayed to try and find evidence of virus and figure out what was going on. And ultimately, they had to withdraw TDF FTC and allow the person to show, unmask their viremia um, to make the diagnosis. And you could argue, was that actually the wrong thing to do to withdraw the PrEP? Should someone have actually have intensified with a full three-drug regimen because the probability that this was true infection was so high? And, and we don't have an answer to what the optimal management of these complicated situations are at this point, because we're just learning about them. But what I will say is some, one thing that's been proposed and talked about is this high inoculum case, could it have been a localized infection? Could it have been limited and held within the gastrointestinal um, inflammatory cells and engine presenting cells because of the TDF-FTC? Was it a limited infection that only became a disseminated infection and therefore evolved its laboratory and clinical manifestations when the TDF-FTC was withdrawn? And we, we, we probably will never know the answer to that question, but it's a new and frustrating complexity that we're seeing. I will um, really encourage everyone to realize that most people who are gonna seroconvert when they're taking PrEP are gonna seroconvert because they're not taking PrEP, right? And so likely the diagnostic pathway is going to be your classic diagnostic pathway. But in these odd cases, and they keep being published as case reports because they are fascinating and we need to learn more about them, it is possible that you will find these aberrant um, laboratory responses, and you may have to at some point make a decision about whether you're going to go down the road of intensifying and potentially committing someone to lifelong antiretroviral therapy, not 100% sure that they're infected, or if you're going to withdraw the PrEP, see what happens, knowing that in a high-risk individual, that's just an opportunity for them to get HIV if they didn't have it before. So it's fraught and it's complicated, and I don't have a, a wonderful answer for you today. That was really long-winded answer to a very easy question, sorry. That's a tough question. <laughs> All right, um, so someone asked about um, the concept of starting um, uh, antiretroviral therapy immediately. Um, in, uh, do you still get genotype typing first, um, and then you 
obviously you aren't going to wait for a result if you're going to start immediately. Um, but would you start Dolutegavir regiment in that situation? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I think the answer is yes, you would do all of the same tests that you would do ordinarily. You just wouldn't wait for them to come back before initiating therapy. So you would want to choose a regimen that you were sure was going to be robust to the um, resistant virus that is common epidemiologically in your area. Happily, to date, we are seeing very little primary integrase resistance transmitted. So most people that I have talked to would be comfortable starting a dolutegravir or probably bictegravir-based regimen as first-line therapy. Personally, I have a little bit of hives about this um, because a colleague of mine, Jen Fulcher, um, has published um, the, a case of someone that we saw about three years ago now with um, a primary HIV infection-like syndrome um, that we started on TDF-FTC dolutegravir, and they blew through the dolutegravir. And we did not send um, initial dolutegravir genotyping, so I can't promise you that they did not have some sort of transmitted dolutegravir resistance, but they developed dolutegravir resistance within three weeks of starting therapy. So my personal N of one bias is that I would start with either a boosted protease inhibitor and integrase with nukes-based regimen, or just the boosted protease inhibitor regimen, and then when I have the genotype back, then de-escalate to something that's easier to treat. It's gonna be short amount of time, you know, on the global scheme of things until you get that genotype back, um, and, and no harm, no foul. I would rather not have that hair-raising experience a second time. But I think you need to know what your local rates of integrase resistance are in your community, and if you're seeing it, um, then I might not do that until I had the integrase genotype back. Very good. Um, someone asked a question about whether you know of any advances in combinations of uh, birth control and PrEP for reproductive age men. <laughs> for reproductive age men. Um, that's an interesting question. No, I don't know of any. I think it's um, I, Maybe it's woman. Oh. Okay, well, women, obviously there's tremendous interest, right, both from an injectable and an implantable standpoint, and also from rings, right? I mean, the whole notion of, you know, it's called MPT, right, multi-purpose technology. That's what women want, right, is they don't want to take different products. They want a single product that can do all of the things that are important to their reproductive health, prevent pregnancy, prevent HIV, prevent potentially STDs. And so, yes, that's an aspirational goal. Unfortunately, um, the complexity of the um, multiple uh, agents and their combinations and the delivery mechanisms, um, we're not there yet, but that is certainly the holy grail. Right, okay, it looks like we're out of time, but um, I have one quick question. Um, you didn't mention anything about uh, cure advances. Um, do you have any comments? Um, so, you know, I, th I think there's some very exciting things on the horizon for cure. In particular, these broadly neutralizing antibodies may actually have ability to shrink the reservoir, and that's something that is being looked at at the same time as 
they've been being looked at for as therapeutic agents. And newly, people are looking at combining these broadly neutralizing antibodies um, with latency reversing agents at the same time. So our old sort of kick and kill kind of um, approach where if you can wake up the hiding virus um, and then attack it with some of these antibody-based technologies, will that move our cure agenda forward? Th these are all exciting, um, but they're all in very early stages of development. Okay. Um, before we take our break, and thank you, Rafi, that was wonderful.